welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. Joining me this morning is Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, good morning. By the way, if you want to keep up with the latest bunkers during the week, just follow us on Twitter or Instagram at bunker underscore pod, and you'll hear about our latest interviewees. Back to business, and very much so in Nadim Zahawi's case, as he's just been sacked as chairman of the Tory party, giving him more time to spend with his millions. Why did he finally have to go, Arthur? Well, in a way, it's sort of ridiculous that it took this long, because he had to go because he had not been clear about the fact that he was under investigation by HMRC when he was charged with the Exchequer, and everyone in the country knew that. But for some reason... Rishi Sunak felt the need to have a special investigation. But what I suppose is interesting is that when he'd commissioned this from Laurie Magnus, who is the latest incumbent in that revolving door of ministerial ethics advisor, he was found to have made, I think, what was called a serious breach of the ministerial code. So at that point, even if Boris Johnson was still prime minister, I think he probably would have had to go. And it only took him a week to come to that conclusion, which is quite fast by the standard of some standards inquiries. Yes. And, and, and I suppose all those uh, slightly ethically challenged uh, cabinet ministers might be slightly nervous at the fact that this new ethics advisor, who was probably chosen because he's a former banker and friendly with the Tories, may be actually quite good at his job. So that's bad news for people like Suella Braverman and Dominic Raab. What did Sahawi's resignation letter tell us? Well, not very much. He didn't seem terribly apologetic. He reminded everyone and I've, I've noticed this, that he, he passes his words very carefully. He says, I arrived in this country not speaking a word of English. And he doesn't say, I arrived in this country as a penniless refugee, because of course he didn't. He comes from, as I think I have talked about previously on other podcasts, uh, a, he comes from a very well-connected and wealthy Kurdish Iraqi family. I think he projected the image of someone who isn't terribly in touch with sort of normal people and therefore doesn't feel great shame or um, regret at his actions. And I imagine that a lot of the people around him, the people he mixes with, probably think this is all ridiculous and unfair. Yes, he also had a pop at the uh, press or what he calls the fourth estate. So uh, <laughs> they always call us the fourth estate when they don't like us. Yeah. Um, where does this leave the PM who wants us to be a model of rectitude? Well, I, I briefly mentioned Dominic Raab earlier. I, I've, I've lost count of how many civil servants have filed formal complaints against his behaviour. You know, he's, he seems to be quite clearly a very unpleasant man to work around and, and, you know, very serious allegations. As it happens, as someone who's worked in the Foreign Office, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that there's a lot of truth to these. It's hard to imagine him surviving. And so, You've got this problem where Rishi Sunak, who I think probably is uh, himself in his own sort of personal life and the way he conducts himself, probably is a decent man, probably does, you know, obey the rules and treat people well. But he's surrounded by a pretty ramshackle gang and he's never going to be able to get back to the sort of present, well, we are a serious sort of law abiding, ethical group of people because, you know, that group of people is not available to him to be in his cabinet. There is, however, now a job vacancy for chair of the Tory party. Tell us who Jacob Rees-Mogg thinks should do it. Well, you've got to love Jacob Rees-Mogg because he's one of those undying loyalists. You know, at a point when Boris Johnson has been dead and buried for 20 years, Jacob Rees-Mogg will still be telling us that he should be prime minister. And Jacob Rees-Mogg is telling us that Boris Johnson should be party chairman. Maybe you can sort of see a kind of weird logic in the sense that 
party chairman is very tied up with campaigning and elections. But, you know, it, it's not a remote possibility that Rishi Sunak would give Boris Johnson such a prominent role and, you know, which would take away all the attention from him and, and would basically just be prepping Johnson to return as prime minister. No, indeed. Meanwhile, the murky affair of Johnson, his cousin, the 800 grand loan and the BBC chairman rolls on. And what's the ding-dang latest on that one, Arthur? Yeah, so it's a basic case of of Boris Johnson lying in public. So he said something like, there's no ding-dang 100% something or other that I had any financial discussions with Richard Sharp. And then the uh, Sunday Times leaked that I think a, a month later, he was told by Simon Case to stop having financial discussions with Richard Sharp. So, you know, it is very, very clear that Boris Johnson obviously was using Richard Sharp as a as a sort of financial advisor. And that's obviously how he managed to get this 800 grand loan. I wonder, this is, I mean, it's a good bit of journalism by the Sunday Times, but I think the average British person is already secure in their view that Boris Johnson is dishonest, is sleazy, is corrupt, will, you know, get get large sums of money off anyone he can. And so I, I, I don't know if it's very it's a very serious development, but something that did stick out to me, which I found staggering and, and you know, I'd like to think I'm reasonably well, you know, sort of uh, well briefed on such matters, is that the reason that Boris Johnson did not have to declare the loan was because Sam Blythe, this is this very wealthy Canadian who is apparently his distant cousin, but that's not really important. Sam Blythe did not have any financial interest in the UK. And therefore, Boris Johnson didn't have to declare the loan. So just think that through. If, for the sake of argument, some Russian comes along who doesn't have any financial interest in the UK and loans you a few million quid, you don't have to declare it. Very good point. I hadn't thought of that. Most of the weekend has been concerned with what's generally called party management, but there have been a few policy developments too. Michael Gove has been doing his best to divert embarrassment with an announcement about the dodgy cladding scandal, the whole Grenfell affair. What did he say? Well, this is a case where Michael Gove may have been at risk of doing the right thing in that he he sort of popped up and said, actually, you know, we owe everyone an apology. And, you know, that basically, you know, government ultimately was responsible for the situation which led, of course, to the dangerous flammable cladding being in use on Grenfell Tower and the fact that, you know, what he called faulty and ambiguous government guidance had, had led to that fire and other 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 buildings still exist with this cladding. And so, yeah, this is where as much as Govan is, is an infuriating person, sometimes he seems capable of getting that actually showing a bit of normal humanity and saying we're wrong, we're sorry, is the right thing to do. And the government hasn't entirely forgotten about the NHS crisis either, has it? Well, no, there's there's some slightly sort of bizarre ideas taking shape. One is that this idea of hospital at home. So as we know that, that there's a problem with beds, you know, being blocked, as it were, in hospitals with people who can't be, you know, released. And the idea would be then that people would be at home and they'd be treated with the sort of levels of care that you might experience in a hospital. Now, the the challenge with this is, of course, that it is not necessarily for lack of buildings that we have this problem. One of the main problems facing the NHS is a lack of staff. And of course, one of the reasons for that, amongst others, is Brexit. So having a new policy 
if you don't have the staff and if you haven't fixed the social care crisis, where, of course, they also have their own staffing crisis, there aren't enough people working in care homes, so they're all full up too. It seems to me that that having a plan, this hospital at home, which sounds sort of jaunty and interesting, is not really the solution. It feels like tinkering around the edges, doesn't it? Yeah. The service that's in- Fiddling while Rome burns is perhaps the expression. <laughs> On Wednesday, there is a massive day of strikes. There are lots of unions going on strike. Uh, My children will not be going to school. Who is striking on Wednesday? Well, I think teachers is one of the main ones. And clearly that that has a huge impact on, you know, people up and down the country who then have to find something to do for their kids. The other sort of major ones on strike on, on Wednesday are trains, as in regular overground trains, and buses, uh, certainly in London. Um, so I think, you know, London will be, will be a pretty, pretty tricky place to navigate on Wednesday. Are we seeing any movement on this? Because so far, the government has given nothing. We're not. And I, I, it, it does seem that the, the government has decided that its approach to this issue will be to do two things. One is to talk about the Labour Party's union paymasters, and we keep hearing that phrase, union paymasters. And the other thing is to tough it out and to try to blame the strikers and, and you know, wh- whether it's accusing nurses of endangering patients or whether it is accusing teachers of, of you know, undermining our children's futures by, by not educating them. But I'm, it's just not at all clear, you know, that there's, there's, there's so much evidence that the public do not look at these workers and think, oh gosh, you know, public sector workers have it easy, and particularly nurses, ambulance drivers, some of those in real frontline professions. I don't know what the view of the teachers is, but I, I as someone with school-aged children, I'd be very surprised if most parents think that teachers have it easy. So it, I, I'm not sure, I mean, the, the government's policy is to tough it out. I'm not sure if that's going to work. Moving to Ukraine, Zelensky has, of course, got the leopard tanks that he wanted from Germany. How was the German PM, Olaf Scholz, persuaded to give them? Well, in the end, he basically said, I'm not doing it until America does it. And so America had to give its Abrams tank. Now, this is kind of stupid because, one, obviously, if Ukraine is operating probably three different tank types, because they'll have the Abrams, the British Challenger, and the leopard, and the, and the leopard is the one that is is by far the most popular across Europe. I don't know whether it's something to do with German cars are always better, aren't they? The German tanks also, apparently. So you, you've got this ridiculous situation where the Ukrainians are going to be operating a small number of American tanks just in order that Chancellor Schultz uh, would, would agree to give the leopard tanks. And of course, that is to forget how much other stuff the Americans are given. It's not as if the Americans had been ungenerous with their support to Ukraine. But this is actually a big deal for Germany, isn't it, because of its history? Yeah, it is. Although in an odd way, I mean, I think Germany had fairly quietly been ramping up its own levels of support to Ukraine in past months. And I think where Germany is uncomfortable is with it being the subject of public debate. And, you know, the the whole thing of, of the leopard tanks became a very public debate. Now, the problem is, of course, that it doesn't finish there. You know, the Ukrainians are always going to need more equipment. They're going to need arguably more powerful and far-reaching kit. And so Germany, Schultz seems to have a problem with messaging where he kind of puts 
red lines in the ground that probably shouldn't be there because they're just going to come back and haunt him later. And Zelensky is at an EU summit on Friday. What's he going to be pressing for next? Yeah, so I think um, uh, fighter jets is 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 an obvious one. And as you know, Schultz has already said, "Oh well, fighter jets, we we we, we can't give them fighter jets." So there's probably it, it's not expected that Germany itself will be the one doing that. I mean, for example, that I think the Netherlands has got a few F-16s, which are now a fairly obsolete American jet, and, and they're, they're, they've indicated that they might give those to the Ukrainians. And then the other thing is longer range missiles. So the, there's been this thing where the, the sort of NATO countries have given Ukrainians missiles that can just about reach the edge of Ukraine, but not sort of far into Russia. And there's a debate about whether the Ukrainians should have a longer reach, not to target Russia per se, but to be able to retake Crimea. Of course, you then get into very complex debates about whether losing Crimea would be Putin's red line to go nuclear. You know, we're not going to solve this on on, a, on our quick start the week podcast, but just to sort of indicate that there's there's a very complex debate about what needs to happen next. And don't forget that these tanks, it's not that they'll be, you know, rolling across the plains of Ukraine in the next few weeks. It will take months and months for them to be ready to deploy. And on the subject of nuclear, we should return to the subject of Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, because he has revealed conversation with Putin. Indeed, he has. And of course, when you've got a uh, conversation to which the only two witnesses are Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin, I think the chances <laughs> of the chances of having an accurate account of what passed are very limited. But supposedly, Boris Johnson, just before the invasion of Ukraine, had one of those calls with Vladimir Putin, and things got a bit heated. And according to Mr. Johnson, Vladimir Putin said, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that. Well, the something like that bit in this sentence might be um, doing quite a lot of work here. So we don't know exactly, but supposedly uh, Putin threatened Boris Johnson and one assumes the rest of Britain um, in in this phone call. It's really Boris Johnson that matters, isn't it? Never mind about the rest of us. In the US, footage emerged over the weekend of a black American, Tyre Nichols, being horribly beaten by Memphis police, and he later died. Tell us about this file case. Yeah. So this is yet another case of police brutality in America against a black citizen. Tyre Nichols was driving his car. He was pulled over. Supposedly, he'd been driving erratically. Maybe he was suspected of being under the influence, who knows? But he was then yanked out of his car and basically beaten to death. Where the complexity arises is that the uh, five policemen who clearly did this were themselves black also. It seems that that doesn't take away from the clear fact that there is structural racism in American society. And of course, police brutality seems to be in some elements of America, you know, inherent in the culture of the police force. But it's it's a horrible, tragic case and, you know, will no doubt consume a lot of attention in the coming days and weeks. There were lethal attacks in Jerusalem at the weekend. How is the new hardline Israeli government reacting to those? Well, they are threatening fire and brimstone. Uh, this this has not come out of the blue. There's been a series of kind of escalations, basically, in Israel. There was a very bloody Israeli military raid on the West Bank. 
and then uh, there was a, a a gunman killed a whole load of people outside a synagogue. And so he's basically Netanyahu's new government is exploring what they call additional deterrent measures, which effectively means things like removing people's rights of citizenship and residency, bulldozing homes, and so on. Uh, I mean, I'm I, I just think we're going to see this sort of continued escalation and a spiral of violence, and which in a way seems to be what the hardline government would want because ultimately it's Netanyahu is now in government not with with sort of conservatives but with actual extremists and and they have to play to their gallery and of course the Palestinians also have a leadership which is um, increasingly uh, at at the margins. Finally there is some good news after Czech presidential elections. Yes that's right perhaps uh, slightly unexpectedly the sort of Donald Trump of of the Czech Republic, Andrei Babiš, who is a billionaire, a former prime minister, but never president of the Czech Republic, he ran against a retired general who's Petr Pavel, who had a sort of distinguished career, including in, in, in sort of senior roles at NATO. Uh, and it was very much the sort of populist rabble rising right against a more traditional kind of um, national security fairly conservative, but but certainly in, in the political mainstream. So it is good to see someone, particularly someone who has close connections to Russia and has been pretty unhelpful about the Ukraine war, Andrei Babish, good to see him lose an election. Thanks very much, Arthur. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners as well. Don't forget you can back us on Patreon by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. And we're going to have a shout out on the show to Patreon backers. Here's Arthur with some now. Yes, so my thanks to Nick, William Bell, Carl Fjellstrom, Mr. Mark Broad, and Leslie Ann Wiling. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks so much for listening and have a good week. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell and was produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.